0: Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. This podcast, by its very nature, is one big ass trigger warning. I'd like to welcome today's guest on the podcast. Her name is April Prayer. She's a criminal defense attorney who was recently voted best lawyer of 2021 in the Chicago Reader. Ms. Prayer has been practicing law for 22 years. She graduated from Duke University and George Washington University Law School. She is the creator of Just Us Junkie, an educational platform, which uses videos, workshops, and her original board game, Trials and Triumph, to teach law in simple terms. Ms. Prayer, April Prayer taught us an adjunct, uh, taught as an adjunct professor at John Marshall Law School and Malcolm X College. She is a regular recurring guest legal analyst on Court TV. She has also been featured on News Nation, Inside Edition, Daily Mail TV, The Oxygen Channel, Good Day Chicago on Fox 32, ABC News Chicago, NBC News Chicago, CBS News New York, Telesur International TV, The Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, Afrotech, ABA Journal, Authority Magazine, Essence, and a lot more. You can read in the show notes for all of her features. Um, and in addition, uh, April prayer has a monthly radio show on www.exaviafox.com. Please see the show notes for more details.
1: I want to welcome you April prayer to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you Thank for you. the great introduction. Thank you so much.
0: Um, I really appreciate you, um, your expertise, your voice, the platforms you've already created, and I just thank you for taking the time to be here with us on on the Everyday Whiteness podcast. I always like to start off by just asking, what does well-meaning, quote, well-meaning white people even mean when you hear that (laughs) to you?
1: (laughs) To me, it means polite, um, not meaning to offend, kind of. Um, tiptoeing around racial issues, liberal, and not always getting it right. In fact, probably getting it wrong more often than they know.
0: And when you, when you come into contact with this kind of not meaning to offend, and yet what I hear is well-intentioned, and yet the impact is still rooted in violence or hurtful, or the impact is not what the person might think in
1: their own n- nor- knowing? I mean, what, what really comes to mind is being oblivious <laughs> because I, I find that's what, that's what happens is that people don't even recognize their own white privilege. They don't recognize what we now call microaggressions. I mean, I wouldn't have known what to call them as a child, but they came at me all the time. I, I went to predominantly, I've been in predominantly white schools my whole life. And I mean, since preschool, I've always attended prestigious private, predominantly white schools. So these were not just white folks, they were wealthy white folks. And generally they were clueless. I mean, we got along fine, but it was like they couldn't truly see me because they didn't see all the layers of me. So that's what I I generally think about. And now in in my profession is still mostly white, mostly male, that's a different layer of violence and uh, obliviousness, but it's, it's still the same thing. It's, you know, they don't, it's it's, you don't know what you don't know. And people don't tend to go looking for what they don't know. Mm. Yes.
0: Yes. And and so, you know, one of the intentions of this podcast is just to hear your story of experiences so that it, uh, can pierce the veils of what people don't know. And I'm wondering if you'll bring us there wherever you want to begin.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Like looking at your, uh, Prep notes that you sent me and tell me, you know, write down stories. And it, I, initially I just had a couple and then it just started to flood and I started getting pissed off. <laughs> and uh, I realized I avoid these conversations, even though, like I mentioned, so I, I do criminal defense. And so what that means is most of my colleagues are white and male and most of my clients are black and male. It's very black and white. I live in Chicago, which is very racially segregated. I happen to live and have grown up in a mixed neighborhood. But like I told you, I've been in predominantly white schools. I went to Duke University. I went to George Washington University. And it's, it, it's <laughs> there are so many different layers to it. So initially, what comes up for me is most recent experiences are When I walk into a court, well, I'll I'll go back. When I talk to young Black women who say that they want to do what I do, that they want to be a criminal defense attorney, they always seek me out in law school. They're always, you know, wide-eyed and eager and so excited. And they're always surprised when I say, prepare to be tackled. And Mm -hmm. that they think it's like a a figurative phrase or, I mean, like, (laughs) prepare for intellectual challenges. I say, no, no, no. I mean, to prepare to be physically tackled. And what I mean is that oftentimes, even though I've been doing this 22 years, I'm well-known in the county that I'm in, I'm well-respected. There are times where I walk into a courtroom and the sheriff doesn't know me or maybe the judge doesn't know me and they assume that I am a defendant, I am a defendant's baby mama, or I am a defendant's mother. And so therefore they act accordingly and literally at least once a month, at least pre-COVID, somebody would physically try to tackle me. There are certain places in the courtroom, the first, I call them pews, but they're benches. The first two benches are for police officers and attorneys. So I'll come in, set my stuff down, get situated. The other thing is I bring a laptop if I'm doing a trial. You're not allowed into a courtroom in my county with a laptop unless you are either an employee or you are an attorney. So the fact that I got past security into a courtroom, I'm in a suit and I have a laptop should tell you a lot but they don't see that they see Hmm. that I am black and female and I could not possibly be there for any other reason that I am facing my own criminal case or I'm there to support my boyfriend who is facing his criminal case. And so I've literally had many, many, many situations where white male sheriffs have tried to attack me physically. And if I'm not dealing with the physical attacks uh, and, and I, you know, and I've learned to kind of do the dance and I smile and know I'm an attorney and I've had once challenge me and say I was lying. You're not an attorney. I've had them tell me, sit your ass down because attorneys are supposed to check in first. And so a judge came on the bench. There was some dead time and she says, oh, hey, you know, are there any private attorneys whose cases we didn't call yet? And I raised my hand. She says, well, why didn't you check in? I said, well, because your deputy told me to sit my ass down. He turned bright red. And then began apologizing. Oh, I didn't know. She looks too young to be an attorney, you know, all that stuff. So, and if it's wow. not the physical attacks, it's the white judge who's sitting on the bench assuming that I don't belong. Hmm. He, he or she, normally he, makes the same assumptions. The white women are far more aggressive. I've had them actually say, No, you're not an attorney. You can't be an attorney. Why? I have the same education you do, and I've been practicing law longer than you have. So, those were the initial thoughts that came to mind when I started. Unpacking uh, your questions of the day, which I want to just
0: pause and say that your your statement of saying you know these aren't conversations I tend to go for, I recognize that as a as a healthy boundary as a black woman professional, human, and even just a human of just saying, yeah, these are conversations I don't have because I deal with this as my state of being in all aspects of my life. So I purposely try not to like engage in conversations where I have to unpack it. Like it's a form of re-traumatizing, I guess is what I want to acknowledge. So even to say that, I want to say, well done. And then again, thank you for showing up to this because as you said, you got to flood more things that came And that's a part of the retraumatization or or the emotional labor of what this really does when asked these types of questions.
1: Well, I guess I'll, I'll couch that and say, I have the conversations. I don't have them with white people. And yes. so it's funny because I hadn't evicted this. I well, event thank
0: you. This. <laughs> thank you for acknowledging that. That's exactly the point of, of that I was making, but exactly with white people, yeah. with uh, other white people. Yes.
1: So I'll do a Facebook post saying exactly what I just said to you, or I'll talk to other black attorneys because I know that they get it. I have black colleagues who have, there's always a moment during the trial where the witness has to identify the supposed perpetrator or offender or whatever. And so it's usually very dramatic like it is on TV. They stand up and they point. And so I know of several Black male attorneys where the person, when it was their moment of truth to stand up and point, they pointed at the Black male attorney instead of the Black male defendant. So I know that they get it so I can have these conversations with them. They don't get that extra layer of being female, but they get it. And so I do have the conversations with them, but it's just like, I don't, I don't want to educate. I don't have time. I don't, I don't have the inclination. And I just, I, I even think a lot of my white me, uh, white colleagues are oblivious. And I definitely don't have the time to educate you when 90% of your clients are black. So I was given the example, I had a, a big event this past weekend. I do know your rights. I call them street law trainings for teens to keep them out of the specific black teens to keep them out of the criminal justice system. And I had one, it was the first time I ever asked for sponsors and all of my sponsors, except for one were black. And so the white sponsor asked me, he says, Hey, I'm just wondering, you know, like, why was I the only white sponsor? (laughs) Ah, And I was like, Oh, I really don't want to dig into this. I, I was like, it's because even though I've been in this predominantly white world, this very mixed world, my closest network is black. Is all black, and the only white persons there are married to black people. So I went to a mixed church, and really all the white people at church pretty much are married to a black man. So they might be in my network, but aside from that, and so I was like, I asked my friends, my friend sponsored, and all my friends happen to be black, and that's been a very intentional journey. I remember telling. Um, I had a white intern when I first started practicing. She was so sweet and she really wanted to be my friend and she was just a genuinely good person. And we ended up being friends, but I had to stop her and tell her, look, I know you're trying really hard to be my friend, um, but I don't trust white women. (laughs) And we had a whole conversation about it. I had that conversation with her and with a colleague who I'm still friends with. I told them both, look, I get it. We're cool. We get along. We got a lot in common, but I don't trust white women because every time I have let my guard down, and trusted a white woman, I have been stabbed in the back.
0: Mm. And the historical weight to that, like, I don't know you personally, this is the first time we've ever talked, but the historical weight of just saying, I don't trust white women and the stab in the back, like the, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack with that. And I just really want to honor what you just said and the importance of
1: it. Like as a, as a, as a right to that space. Yeah. I mean, and it's great because the two women I'm talking about in particular pushed me on it and ended up being great friends. And the only reason like we're not close now, they moved away and had families and all that stuff. And I'm single. Um, But they met me there like they were willing to have the conversation. And that's usually the problem with white colleagues and friends is they don't want to have the conversation because they feel attacked and. My personality, anyway, is I'm very outgoing, very outspoken, uh, loud, have been like this since I was three years old. So this is not particular to my profession, but being packaged like that in this brown body, people see it as aggressive and you're always the angry Black woman. Every Mm -hmm. time I go into a meeting and I have a new idea and I am passionate about it, I get deemed the angry Black woman. So my response is, I don't do meetings. I don't want to come to your meeting because I'm going to be the squeaky wheel. I'm going to be the one who views things differently. Just that's, that's my nature. But when I voice my views, now I'm the troublemaker. I'm the one who doesn't do things the way that they've always been done. And I'm the loud, angry black woman. And I'm, and I'm used to being in spaces where I'm the only one there. Yeah. I sit on a board of a homeless shelter. Now I'm the only black woman. I was the only black person. Um, I don't know if I was first, but I'm the only black person and even explaining to them why this is problematic since all of our guests, as we call them, people who are experiencing homelessness are black. Yeah. So it's very paternalistic to have this board. And I've said this repeatedly and it's just like, they don't understand because then they feel attacked. And I'm just tired of having these conversations. You know, I'm not... I'm I'm grown. I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I eat. Some yeah, yeah. white person needed me to explain something to them, and it's just infuriating and exhausting.
0: Yeah, it's like keep that. It's like keep that. And what I hear you have done is like created really healthy boundaries and created a network of black people and 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 other humans that you can count on that have proved trustworthy when brought to a conversation like you like you spoke. I just really value what you're saying. Like it's, it's like, it's like cr- putting a line in the, you've learned to navigate the spaces and I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you these unadulterated access to my energy when you're not understanding and seeing me fully.
1: Yeah, because I still have to have, right. And I, and this is what I have to explain to people is every single criminal case I have race is a factor. Every single one, the cops are white and my clients are black. Or the cops were white and my client is Mexican. Or the cops were white and Mexican and my clients are black. It's always an issue. So I'm always having some sort of race conversation. And the interesting thing is, my former law partner, in the last 12 years, was a white male. He's Jewish, but he was comfortable. He had a black wife, a biracial daughter, a, a, a black stepdaughter. So he was used to having these conversations as well. And Like our rule in the office was we're not politically correct. You can't have the real conversations about how this white cop followed my black client around just because he's black, arrested him, planted drugs on him, whatever it is, and then beat him up. Without addressing race, you can't, you can't do it. And so that's why I get so frustrated when I talk to colleagues who oh, maybe with some other reason and maybe you misunderstood or it's like you're denying my experience. You're saying I don't see what I see with my eyes and instead I got to trust your view
0: and to even have the concept that it can never not be about race is is like astounding because there's no way it cannot be and so i hear the exhaustion of trying to explain to white people that don't have any infusion of some sort of other body of culture in their family or lineage that are that you're having to exhaust yourself to try to explain that and it's like no no more because it always has to do with race you're saying that with in your in your profession which makes sense to me, but also in other aspects of your life, as a professional, you just showing up to your profession, it's about race. And you just explained that eloquently. And yet it blows my mind over and over again, that white people can continue to be like, that's the race card, or that's not about race, as if it's possible to see the world outside of that lens at all, because it's through the white lens in the first place.
1: Well, I'll give this example. So when I was in law school. So I went to law school in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. proper is mostly black. Well, it was at the time. I don't know what it is now because it's changed so much, but it was mostly black. People who are from D.C. are generally black. They call it chocolate city. But obviously you have all these mostly white institutions there aside from Howard. So I went to George Washington, mostly white. I don't even think we had 10% black. I think our class was the first class at 10% black that's been my trend. It was the same in Duke. (laughs) So say we had 10%, 9% Black kids, and I think there were 1,200 kids there, or students there. And so my third year, I wrote an article for the paper, and the title was, Why Do All the White Kids Sit Together? When I tell you I got so much blowback, because I was the student my first year Who knew every, we had 96 students in my section. I knew not only everybody's name, I knew something about everybody, where they were from, Mm. what they were into, like everybody in my class, white, black, Mexican, whatever you were, I knew your story. And I went out of my way to find out your story. And so I had a lot of good acquaintances and, but every year I would hear the same thing. You know, the black kids would congregate in the lounge and we sit together or we would sit together in this other little area. And I would hear the murmurings of these white kids talking about why do all the black kids sit together. And I'm like, it, but you don't see that the whole school is all white and all y'all sit together. And so I did an extensive piece about how you could go through all three years of law school and never have a conversation with a black person. You don't have to be in, you don't have to sit next to them in class. You don't have to be in a study group with them. You don't have to be in like, you know, the little project groups that you have for classes to do a presentation or whatever. You don't have to room with one. You don't have to, I, I just went through the whole thing. Like, and I laid it all out. What your focus is, your lens is, why are the 10 of us sitting together? Why are the 1,200 of y'all sitting together? And when I tell you I got so much blowback, white people were so angry at me. Like Mm. I had once, I had some come up to me and say they'll never speak to me again. I'm like, so did you actually read the article? Right. And I mean, very few, very few backed me. The black kids thought it was hilarious. But the white, and, and they thought it was hilarious coming from me because I had gone to great lengths to get to know everybody. There were two white guys in particular I hung out with pretty regularly and, you know, they got it. But everybody else in the school pretty much turned against me Mm. when I wrote that article. And I'm like, but that sums it up right there. Like you could go, I said, not only these three years, you can go through the rest of your life and never have to interact with me you're not going to join a black firm you're not gonna you don't have to have any black colleagues you can you don't have to have a black spouse you can navigate your whole life I don't have that option living in the Mm. United States Nowhere I live I don't care if I live in a black neighborhood in a black city I'm gonna have to see somebody at work I'm gonna have to have customers I'm gonna have to there's going to be some interaction that I'm going to have on a fairly regular basis and that is not your experience
0: Essentially they can choose not to see you. Yes. And so the interaction when interacting, white people will do that regularly. Choose not to see the person in front of them and only see whatever conceptions have been implanted in their own consciousness, their own world. Yeah, or they'll
1: see a caricature. So Hmm. the when I was thinking about the stories, the one that pissed me off because it took me years to kind of process this. So Like I said, I live in a mixed neighborhood. I've been in private schools. And so for high school, I had to go out way outside of my neighborhood. I mean, like an hour, almost an hour away on public transportation to get there. And the train closest to me is the nice train. It's not the public transportation that most folks take. It's um, an express train that pretty much goes from the neighborhood where I live downtown. Uh, Yeah, downtown. And so when I started my freshman year, I was, as far as I knew at the time, I found out later there was one other person, but I thought I was the only black person from the school who was making this route. And so I would see the white kids from my school, you know, on the train. I mean, we spotted each other because of our age alone, or I had seen them at school. And so one white girl who I'm still friends with now, and I think she got it because she was adopted. And I think that's important. I think she always felt like the I man out. because She was adopted. She saw me as kind of the I man out because I would just get on the train and sit by myself the whole hour there whole hour back not interact with anybody even though i'm very outgoing and so she approached me hey april why don't you sit with us i was like nah i'm good you know because i get to study i can do whatever when i'm on my own i can sleep she's like no just come sit with us beg me beg me beg me i go sit with these all white girls all irish white girls from beverly they call them Beth brats that was the nickname so i go sit with the Beth brats and in these particular trains you can get um a space where there are four seats facing each other and then the next is four seats facing each other so we took over the little section there are eight of us sitting there and we're just talking about pop culture and videos and stuff and somehow mc hammer comes up because mc hammer was popular when i was in high school Mm -hmm. mc hammer pops so we're just kind of all talking and then they're like oh yeah he can really dance he wears those crazy pants and they all start chanting except for my friend april oh my god get up and dance like mc hammer i'm like i'm i i'm not even processing this i'm like what are you talking about and uh i'm not even i can't wrap my head around how this conversation is happening it's like an out-of-body experience they all start chanting, yeah april get up and dance like mc hammer dance like mc hammer come on april like it's, and they were relentless i don't mean this is one or two chance i mean 10 12 mm. come on my friend is bright red and mortified <laughs> she got her head down like oh my god you gotta be kidding me i'm like uh so i just lie and say i can't dance yes you can we know you can dance come on dance like mc hammer i'm like uh, i never roll with them again ever I found the one other Black person on the train from my class and then the following year we had more Black students who joined and I sat with them. I never sat with these white girls ever again. And I'm sure if I told this story to anyone, they will remember it and still not see what they did wrong.
0: Still to this day, you don't think they still, would see it?
1: Still to the, I saw oh, them at the, our 30th reunion a few months ago and everybody was lovely and everybody is, you know,
0: Nice. beautiful and everybody's
1: welcoming and I don't think that they, they would get it except for the one friend because she was <laughs> <laughs> except for the one she was, friend she's she's still very woke so uh she, she would get it she was I mean she was so embarrassed for me she was like I'm so yeah. sorry yeah <laughs> wow so I know
0: that was a high school experience I know those types of stories exist still present day and these are things that um black people share amongst other black people because you get it and you don't go through the emotional labor of sharing it with other white people because so many don't and i'm hearing this i'm hearing the obliviousness that's everywhere and that even just to navigate life being in your body you you deal with that obliviousness so much less revisiting a story of it is extra um and uh I'm wondering if there's more stories like that, that you want to pierce the veil of because I know they happen in everyday life. I guess that cultural other, other, your friend, I relate to that. Cause I grew up very culturally othered, you know, I grew up with an Indian name and my parents joined a spiritual ro- religious culture. And, and so the falsity of, of not cons- being white, cause I just wasn't mainstream American white and the realization, like, no, I want to have these conversations because I realize how much obliviousness is out here among whiteness. And the best way to pierce it is through real stories. Like, yeah, I was interacting with so-and-so and this happened, and <laughs> emoji <I> think, puke.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think what happens more now, like in my profession, is and it's very strange that. I have white colleagues who choose to make me invisible, mm. and I say that it's a choice. So, like I mentioned, my law partner, my former law partner, is Jewish, and um, well, two stories that brings to mind. Uh, so he he's Jewish, and he would introduce me to you know we both had colleagues of all races. So he would introduce me to his network. I introduced him to my network, and so. It was very strange because all the white lawyers, or a good number of the white lawyers, he introduced me to. I was passed in the hallway maybe a week later, maybe a couple of weeks later, and there are not very many people who do what I do, especially in, um, especially in two particular courthouses. Like it is not unusual for me to walk in and be the only black person, mm-hmm. let alone the only black female attorney with wildly curly hair who is brown skin with my build like you're not going to miss me like (laughs) you're just not you're just not going to miss me and they walk right past me like i am in paint on the wall and i and and first there was one particular guy who would do it over and over and over again and so you know at first i'll play along and i may he doesn't remember me i'll walk up and reintroduce myself but then three weeks later, and you do it again, and again, and again, at this point, I'm just giving you the middle finger. And I would just notice this, and, and it was interesting, too. There's one in particular who is a lesbian, and she dresses more male than female, or whatever the appropriate terms are. And I'm like, yo, you're pretty other, too. <laughs> like... You stand out, no, you can't tell me you don't see me and over and over, I've met her at least ten times, and every single time she acts like I am not there. So that's one. But the other main issue and i I actually thought this was funny. so so my former law partner and I would interview people for different positions uh, uh, attorney positions, sometimes office staff positions. And then other, he was really involved in politics. So people would come just to meet with him. So I I don't know much because I haven't applied for it. I've worked for myself for almost 17 years. But I do know that you're pretty much supposed to research the firm that you're going to work for. And so people would come and they would be all excited to meet, his name is Schiller, meet Mr. Schiller. And they would come and they would be dressed up and, you know, the receptionist would let them in. They would sit in the little waiting room and we would dress pretty casual on days that we didn't have court. So I I never really did jeans, but I would be in slacks and a blouse. And so I would mill about the building and go to the bathroom or walk past these people. And every single time, and I do mean every single time, they were always very dismissive to me. They all assumed I was the receptionist. So, all very dismissive in their language, in their body language, and their demeanor. Um, even if I would greet them and say hello or welcome, or it'll just be a few more minutes, just very dismissive. They would see my law partner come, who's usually dressed pretty bummy, like blue jeans and a t-shirt or a ripped sweatshirt. They would come, their faces would light up, they would sit up straight. And I wouldn't say anything. So normally he would start the meeting. I would come in later. And then he would say, oh, this is my law partner, April. And when I tell you their jaws dropped to the floor because they had just, they, I thought I was a secretary or they thought, and not that you're supposed to treat anybody differently for those reasons either.
0: Right.
1: But it was very clear that they had not done their homework. Mm-hmm. That they did not know that his black law partner that is his law was black and I'm all over the website. So I didn't understand that, but it was amazing. And then, and this, this, this wasn't just white candidates. It was worse with the white candidates, but they just did not expect that this black woman would be the one who they would have to be asking for a job. And anybody who acted like that, I immediately X them off and they did not get the job. Didn't matter how well the interview went.
0: Mm. And this didn't happen with just white candidates. This happened with, this was just worse. It just it demonstrated, just it was just more amplified. So those same behaviors showed up in other bodies of culture that were coming to interview in the treatment of you. Yes,
1: yeah, so it was, and they that, all deferred to him. They all revered, revered him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know if that was whiteness or maleness or, or both. And a
0: combination, right? And a combination. Yeah. But I want to acknowledge that both of these m- Magnified stories you just sh- shared. If you walk into a courtroom and the default is you're the baby mama, what was it, the mom, and yeah. or, or a client or a defendant or a defendant, like, like, or a defendant yeah. right? You're one or of those defendant. three. And then in this case, you don't know what's going on, but the body language and demeanor is not one of of any respect, st- uh, appreciation, or acknowledgement that you could be in service to them as opposed to. Anything. I mean, some,
1: some were downright disrespectful. Wow. And then it was great when I would just walk, you know, we have to gather our folders and gather their resumes and stuff. And so I would run about and walk into the room and you see their eyes go, oh shit. Oh yeah. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> Let's chat about how you're not gonna get this job. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's talk about the whole narrative that got written in your story in the last three minutes in body language.
1: Yeah, and exactly. the, his
0: his the, the, the weight of it and the history of it, like the images in, in people's minds and distortions in their minds of the black woman, right? That's essentially what it's coming down to. And you, here you are educated and, and they don't know who you are. They don't know your story. They haven't taken the time. Like you described how you were in in class and university and you're taking the time to be curious about other people and learning about them this is how we break those cultural assumptions these implanted but you're talking about over and over again interfacing with a whole but of all sorts of experiences where all they're seeing is whatever narratives are going on in their mind of the black woman
1: yes yes so i we had um an associate she was a white woman And we're good friends. We still get along. Um, And she worked for us for 10 years. And I just remember her coming back one day. She had done a jury. I wasn't on the jury with her. She came back one day in tears. She had lost the case. Our client was a Black woman. Hmm. And our client was loud, outgoing, um, uncouth, (laughs) in your face, not going to back down. And she had been beaten badly by police officers. Hmm. Badly. Kicked and stomped and punched by police officers, and it was all. She had video evidence showing that she had been beaten by them, um, and we had settled part of the case. And then, with one of the other parties, we couldn't settle, so we went to trial. And then they lost. And so, after a trial ends, if the judge allows it, you like to have the opportunity to talk to the jurors to see why it is they made certain decisions. You know. Can they give you any instruction about how you might do something differently, those sorts of things? And she's a younger lawyer than me. And so she went in the back and she was she's a white woman and her client was not present for this conversation with the jury. And the other side were all white attorneys and the jury was all white. And Mm -hmm. as she heard the jurors talking, she heard them say, well, you know how those black women are. They fight and grab each other by the weave and beat each other up, which had nothing to do with our case. But what they painted was like this horror story that you might see on a reality TV show. And that was the jurors view of black women. And so my colleague and friend was mortified and she hears them going on as this one person is talking about how black women attack each other and grab each other by the weave and beat each other up all the other jurors are not in good agreement. And they said that was why they did not give our client anything because she's that type of Black woman. And so when my colleague came back and told me the story. Like, she's stunned and shocked. And I'm just kind of like, nodding my head. Like, why are you so upset? Like, why does any of this surprise you? Right. <laughs> Nothing that you said surprised me. It doesn't surprise me. They said it aloud. It doesn't surprise me. They said it aloud to you. It doesn't surprise me that they thought this through. It doesn't surprise me that this was the consensus of these white jurors. And and she, I mean, she was just devastated. She just could not stop crying. And I'm just like, it's it's alright. Yeah. I'm not surprised. And you know, at least we settled the other part of the case, so our client walked away with a a lot of money.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean. I'm I'm surprised but I'm not surprised you know like yeah. I don't the more language it's given it the more it's spoken out loud the more the 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 better so it's not just in the circles of where it's been but it's still just back to the throw up emoji for me
1: well I mean a lot has people are more let's see vocal since George Floyd's death and That has played out some in the courtroom as well. I mean, we also had the pandemic, which has slowed down court operations. But in the jury that I've done since the pandemic hit, and like I said, race is always an issue in my cases, so it's something that we have to address in jury selection. So we had several young white jurors, or potential jurors, I should say, stand up and say that because of George Floyd's killing, it opened their eyes and now they don't trust cops. And now, and we had one kid, he was very eloquent, and he just <laughs> went on and on about um, the victimization of Black people and how white supremacy. And I mean, there's a whole little speech. I mean, it clearly got kicked off because it just <laughs> used that against them to deduce that he couldn't be fair. But I've never seen that before in 22 years of doing this. These young people wow. standing up and saying, look, I had to take a look in the mirror to, to, to take a look at myself because I always believed white police officers believed that they were just and believed that they were doing the right thing. And George Floyd's death changed all of that for me. And so we found that more and more with jurors and even older white jurors saying that because of George Floyd's killing, And how disgusted and appalled they were by it, they realized that they themselves had been racist and that they were taking a closer look at themselves. And so it's been good for that. It's been interesting um, for me, in addition to being a criminal defense attorney for the last 12 years, I've also sued police officers, municipalities for civil rights violations. And most of those have been excessive force. And so for me, I had seen not people die exactly like George Floyd did, but I had seen too many cases like this where my clients were killed, shot, tasered, beat, again, always by white police and usually a black Puerto Rican or Mexican client. So I had a different vantage point, but I was glad that others thank goodness for cell phone cameras right uh that others are starting to wake up as well or at least start to do some introspection as it relates to race
0: yeah and and the and the great historical nature of that right the 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 weaponized whiteness and this unconscious operating system of 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 terror right of terror on the black body and how that's being displayed like that's how i i've seen it it's just like lynchings in 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 2022 right but it's it's modern day and so it's but the historical nature repeating itself in new ways and in faster ways that we're able to see but it's no different than the weight of the ancestral memories that our systems hold both white people and people of all bodies of culture because of of the history the history of so speaking to it hearing what you said is good and that it, you're you're saying like kind of on a mass scale more people you're seeing it happen in your courtroom right so that you can see like this trickle effect do you notice this in your everyday interactions with folks in terms of, um, or, or is it still kind of like
1: well-meaning, but still not hitting the mark? Um, no, I don't see it at all. I don't see, and I don't see any long-term effects from, hmm. so I'll say this. So I did a whole presentation right. for my street law class about, I call it the George Floyd, Floyd effect and how corporations were so terrified that black dollars were gonna go elsewhere that they started throwing money at black businesses and they started throwing money at, um, the banks started creating these special funds and all this stuff. But if you actually track the money, most of it is in the form of loans, not grants, meaning that ultimately these institutions will make a buck themselves and so I just said that it was a way to give lip service to it and if you still look at their boards most of their boards have zero black people on it um, they have <laughs> and they're you know their higher level they call them c-suite executives I think eight percent are black um, or no I'll say eight percent are non-white and so we know that may not mean they're black at all. <laughs> so yes. it hasn't hasn't really changed anything. But everybody wanted to look good. And in terms of politicians, they all had to quickly jot down new laws and take for the you know take take away chokeholds and look like they were on the right side of history but a lot of that has been lip service as well too so if you look at the everyday operations of a courtroom nothing has changed george floyd's death was totally in vain and that there are hundreds of george floyd's that we don't know anything about whose names we'll never know they don't even get to be a hashtag because they don't make the media and that's those are the things that I'm too exhausted to explain to white people about how this is, it's yes. just terrorism. I got into, I was on invited on some panel to be some subject matter expert. And it ended up being with a whole bunch of political candidates mm. from my area. And I, I didn't know most of them. And I got into it with the guy who was running for sheriff and he lost. Ha ha. Uh, but We got into an argument because I was telling him, I said, well, the problem with policing isn't training. The problem with policing is culture. And it's a paramilitary system where they're taught it's us versus them. And the them is Black folks. It's anybody other. And you have to look at the beginnings of policing in this country. Yes. We have police in this country because it was based on slave catchers. That's the only reason we had any type of patrols initially was to track down enslaved Africans and take them back to their owners and owners I have in air quotes. So he says, no, that's not the beginning of policing in this country. And so we have it out. Like I'm not a history buff, but I do know this. And so we're going back and forth. And there's another young black lady who got on him about that. And I'm just like, again, it's just like, He had no facts. He had no historical figures. He just wanted to argue that that's not how policing started in this country. Sir, it is how policing started. And if that's the foundation of policing, how 180 years later is it going to be so different? You can talk about we get rid of the bad apples, but the entire thing is built on, the entire system is built on covering up wrongdoing this blue wall of silence to protect your brother and your brother is likely white. And if it's a sole black officer out here who's trying to do the right thing, his life literally might be in jeopardy if he ends up being the whistleblower against you. You might not have his back on that next call. So you cannot tell me that one can be separated from the other. But again, you know, and he gets loud and he's like trying to talk over me. And finally, I, sir, I never spoke over you. I said my piece. And I allowed you to say your piece. And the minute I start talking, you start talking over me because you're trying to control me. Mm. But these are the types of things that happen all the time. All Absolutely all the time. White men cut me off mid-sentence after I've allowed them to have their say. I can't have my say. They get loud. They they start to bully because that's what works for white men in this country.
0: Mm used to controlling the bodies right and, uh, and controlling the space that 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 black and brown body people inhabit yeah and don't know how Absolutely. to even be in themselves without having that sense of entitlement and ownership over black space over black bodies
1: yeah Yes. So, you know, and that's why I get exhausted. Like I'll have the race conversations as it relates to my clients and my clients struggle and directed at somebody who needs to hear it like a judge or a jury. But in terms of casual conversations with white people, I don't really socialize with them very much. Um, And it's all very conscious. It's all very intentional. Um, I just, (laughs) I just feel safer in mostly black spaces.
0: And is there anything you want to say to
1: w- why you've learned to not trust the white woman? <sighs> that goes back to childhood. So, like I said, I went to these predominantly white schools, and in middle school is when everything changed. Like before middle school, everybody's friends with everybody, everybody's on on the playground and a recess but sixth grade seventh grade everybody starts finding their cliques even at tiny little schools people find their cliques and so our cliques broke down according to racial lines and so i had been really close to a girl and she was actually armenian so i don't i don't know what that's supposed to be she i I just called her white so but when the racial lines broke down she stopped hanging with me and like completely dismissed me and started with this all white clique and I just was like well wait a minute but we've been friends for I don't know six years five years whatever second grade third grade whatever it was and now I just don't exist because you over here with these white girls and so that was my first really bad experience and then I saw it happen more and more I saw it happen in high school and it was just like I was cool to be their friend, to be their confidant, to be the one they were talking to until the white girls came around. And so I just start. I just I'm observant. I start peeping this. Oh, okay. So I'm cool. I'm your friend until the white girls come around. And that continued into my professional life. Um, and so I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't I don't have to mess with y'all. <laughs> you go do your thing. I'm never gonna be rude or disrespectful or mean or anything. I'm gonna always be cordial. We can brainstorm work cases or classwork or whatever it is and in law school I don't think I had any white female friends I think all the I just started gravitating more to the guys and I'm in a male dominated field right now so most of my colleagues are men as well black or white but that it started with that incident when I was 12 and the white girl decided to choose her white friends over me and I just started seeing it more and more and more and more. And then the MC Hammer incident did not help Ooh, at all. Didn't,
0: no, 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 that was like, <laughs> that was like adding some gasoline to this already, uh, t- t- uh already burning flame. I want to just, yes, (laughs) say out loud that, you know, you're speaking to personal experiences that, yeah, are rooted in your personal interactions, yet it's also amplifying a much larger cultural story that as a child, you're learning to notice and navigate. And it sounds like you've navigated exceptionally well. Um, And it without, not without, plenty of scar tissue and boundaries to boot. Right. So I want to just say like, well done, like to even just be able to say, yeah, I've learned like, I, this is the spaces that I create in and, and, and this is where I, I voice and I have to navigate this somewhere else. The importance of that. And, and for white listeners listening, it's like we don't have the entitlement to black people into black space and to hear black people create boundaries for themselves. It's one of the most beautiful things because it's called agency, right? And when you have a long history of white people having agency over the bodies and territory called your own body, we don't have the lens of that, of what that means. And so just to hear that is commendable, but it's also righteous and beautiful and and the right of every human. And, you know, I just want to say that.
1: So, Uh, yeah, I was invited on to a friend of mine had uh, I guess it was near the beginning of the pandemic I think he was meeting once a month on zoom with people from different races and trying to create a safe space for people to just really say anything so that we could really get past it and learn and so he invited me and I think I went twice and one of the coordinators was this was a Chinese woman and she called me after the second one and the second one was pretty heated there was um a white man on there I don't remember what he said but it got to be a pretty nasty conversation and I Mm. left pissed off and so when she called to invite me back well she says you know I really need you to come back I really you know I really like learning from you I really want you to come teach us Mm. and that set me off and I was like look lady (laughs) I've been teaching my whole life and I don't have the time or inclination to teach you. And I can't remember what the man said. It was really ignorant though. It was just something like a general distrust of black people. I don't know if he thought black people weren't, they were talking about qualifications for a job. And like, he assumes that the black person is not qualified something along those lines. Mm. And so we had a whole conversation around that And I ripped him a new one and told him all the ways that he was wrong. And so she wanted me to come back every time and teach the people on the panel. I'm like, first of all, this is not, this is not my passion. This is not my work. (laughs) I'm not the least bit excited about this. Like I was happy to come as a guest and now I no longer feel comfortable as a guest. And now you want me to come and be the talking black girl to teach your clueless white participants their error mm. their ways I'm um, i'm not the one <laughs> and so uh, th- and that is where i create boundaries because i'm happy to talk race all day to you know that's ad right. nauseum but i'm not coming on to teach the wide-eyed white girl um you know how to be less racist i i, I don't have the energy go read a book go read several yeah. books Things go get some sweaty. black friends <laughs> that's right that's right they want to be your friend <laughs>
0: But really, it's <laughs> study, right? It's study on your own. And, and the tokenism, right? The token, like to bring in, oh, this, per- you know, I, I see that a lot. What white space is wanting to bring in, you know, a black person to teach, you know, and it's, 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 it's going back to that invisibility of realizing there are lots of forms of black people within black culture. So to even do yeah. that is a form of offense, even to do right, it's, it's adding to, to the layers of oblivion that you can start to be off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I remember this one incident that I was I was at Duke. I was a junior, I think, and the Million Man March happened. Mm. And when the Million Man March happened, I went because it was interesting because Farrakhan, you know, said you know, basically, like women stay at home, whatever. Sir, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm coming. <laughs> so I went, and I went with, I stayed with one of my girlfriends from high school, and a whole group of us went, a mixed group, guys and girls. So we went, and it was just this beautiful experience to see. And once I got there, I actually realized I shouldn't be there, mm-hmm. because it it needed to be a space for just men. But it was beautiful to witness. So you see all these men on the mall and it's peaceful and they greet each other and hugging and, you know, Mm. calling each other brother. And it was just a really amazing, memorable experience. So I was really excited when I left. And I went back to school and I was in a writing class because I was an English major. I was in a writing class and I did an essay about my experience and just talk about you know the pool of black people and peace and all the things that that transpired and all the things i saw and all the love that i felt and it was just a really really beautiful energy to the peace mm. so my teacher happened to be jewish very significant to the story yeah so this was a very small it was a of very small is. writing group yeah it was a very small <laughs> writing group and uh, what we would do is we would all read each other's papers and all critique each other's papers and comment or whatever. And then the teacher would comment. And everybody kind of had a few minutes to speak about each person's piece. Like, oh, okay, you should you might want to choose different wording or you might want to change this around or move this paragraph or you might want to take this paragraph out. Those sorts of things. That's what we did each class. I think there were six of us in the class. So I did my piece and I'm very excited about it. Turned it into everybody. And uh, nobody really had anything to say because the teacher spent, I think the class might've been 50 minutes long. She spent 40 minutes ripping me a new one because how could I go support this racist man, this um, anti-Semite and um, anything that he touches is, what? and the piece had nothing to, I mean, aside from Farrakhan being the organizer, the piece itself had nothing to do with Farrakhan. It had to do with what I witnessed with busloads of Black men coming together for a purpose to try to better their communities. I I, I mean, I don't even know if I mentioned Farrakhan's name in the piece. And so she goes on and on and on about how hateful he is and how, I mean, it's like, but she's screaming at me to the point that a white boy jumped up and said, just stop it. Uh -uh. Just stop it. Leave her alone. And it was a really awkward moment, as you can imagine, for everybody in the class. And the class was over a few minutes later. And so I went back. I was just destroyed because I'm an excellent writer. And first of all, you're not going to mess up my GPA by giving me anything less than an A in this class Mm -hmm. because you disagree with my views. Mm -hmm. Um, But secondly, I was passionate about the experience I had just had. I mean, it was really touching. It was a really touching experience. And so I went back and I wrote another essay. Mm. And I think the first line was, first line was something like, um, "Oh, something about the devil, like, like uh, even the devil can be a messenger." Mm. And whatever it was, I went off and told her off and backed up every single thing that I had said because she was like, "There weren't a million people there. I don't know why they called it Million Man March, and he's a charlatan, and he's a this, and he's." Whatever she said in class, like I backed it up in my essay and I turned it into her. And then we had to have a special meeting. And in the special meeting, she says, oh, well, this is the best thing you've ever written. First of all, lady, this is not for an assignment. This was to tell you off. Let's be very clear. And so we're meeting and she's going on and she's scolding me again more and more and more about fair kindness and fair that, and all of this. And there was a knock at her door. And in the middle of the meeting, it was... One of her bosses, who happened to be a former English professor of mine, i taken two of her courses. She comes in, oh my God, it's April! April's the best student in my class. And she's just going on and on, gushing about me, runs up and gives me a hug. And then the woman whose class I'm in has a red face. And she doesn't know what to say. Because at this point, she hasn't given a thought to how I write. She's only given a thought to the fact that she didn't agree with Fair the right. message. Yeah. And she didn't. And agree, not and even agree. your message. Yeah, not even my message. Gone,
0: right. Yeah, she didn't agree like just her. just her world view of 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 him and being who she is. Wow.
1: Yeah, and so and I I don't know. I think she gave me a D or something on that <gasps> on that um on my essay. And so and then her friend comes in. Like I said, the friend is actually I think a supervisor was her boss, and she's gushing about how great I am as a writer, and I can see her face change. And so then the lady leaves and she was like, oh, you know, I'll go ahead and modify your grade and I'll make it into an A minus considering, you know, what we talked about. And I was just like, lady, like that is not the takeaway. The takeaway is not you change my grade because you see that I'm friends with your colleague, <laughs> and that your colleague thinks I'm, I mean, I had the other professor. I've been in her house. I had met her kids. Like she loved me. We, we corresponded for years after I even left Duke. And I'm like, that's not the takeaway. The takeaway is you don't attack a student based on not even their views on the views of the organizer of an event they attended. Like this was absolutely ludicrous to me. But it was just another chance where a white woman had power over me and had stabbed me in the back.
0: And that the endorsement of another white woman that you had gained approval was then the key factor that changed that person. To watch that dynamic, it's such a manipulative power dynamic that's so old, so historical, and is wielded in plain sight to this day. So whether it's the white man's wielded power or the white woman or the white woman's endorsement, oh, no, she's a good one, or whatever the thing is in somebody's weird, distorted historical uh imprinting.
1: Yeah, it was like she had to vouch for me. And once she vouched, yeah. oh okay, she's a she's a she's a good black person. I'll yeah. go ahead and give her a give her a pass.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then you suddenly get the upgrade, you know, as it and and like again oh, the... I remember the quote
1: now it was even the okay. devil can <laughs> even the devil can quote scripture. That was the very first line. And then I talked about like your focus was on the the person who organized this and the message messenger and you totally missed
0: the message. And miss the humanity of the person expressing themselves as the student, right? So there's many layers that she missed. She missed that she's the professor and there's a an expression of this student that's a humanity, right? It's not your personal view. It's not your religious view. It's not who you are. But once again, it's not seeing you Right, it's only this stance, and then what Farrakhan associated with, and black people against Jews, and all the other things, and then you get the brunt of that in this interaction. And once again, it's like, what power would you have had to go to circumvent that if it weren't for this um, this moment of of
1: realizing that they had connectivity? Um, yeah, none, none, and that, and, that's, and yeah. what, and what was most insulting is prior to that. For every class, I had been the, the Black voice. Oh, what? Uh, this issue is happening in the world. April, tell us what Black people think. Every single class. Oh my God, April, what do Black people think? What are Black people saying? What are Black people doing? What? Did, I, uh, for every single class. And so the one time I actually do write something about the quote unquote Black experience, that's the blowback I get. Wow, wow. That's, that's, it,
0: it must be exhaustive in all of the white spaces you've had to navigate through that you repeatedly have been the only black person and been, been made to be a token over and over and over again. Like, what do you think? Or I mean, the MC hammer is, that is a secular example, but through your studies, that must've just happened all over the place. And even oh, in did. your profession today.
1: It, yeah, and that's, that's the problem. It never, stops. <laughs> I know.
0: It just, it's like it's just like a television station that never goes off. I'm so sorry. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> it, it never, it never stops. But yeah, definitely all throughout elementary school, like maybe there, I think there might have been eight students, might have been eight black students, six black students in my class, so like 36. But um, yeah, it was, it was the constant what do you think in the history class, what do you think Martin Luther King would think about this? And what do you you (laughs) know? That line alone kills me. Like (laughs)
0: why do, is the one black person you reference in all time, Martin Luther King. Like that should tell you the amount of information that you've had inputted into your, into your awareness around black culture, black space, black, anything, anything right. And black relationships, black families, like black music, like anything, you know, and and for white people to do some very simple and basic necessary work of start educating yourself cross-culturally. You know, you're not entitled to to the cloak of what black people are through these false narratives that came through the 30s, 40s, 50s. And white people haven't had to navigate that because we're not navigating in everyday life, right? And where you're exposing like the oblivion is so astounding. Being in my body is exhausting dealing with you people. Like, that's what I hear.
1: Yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, you got to add to it. I was at predominantly white schools, private schools. And so literally, literally, my history books contained two paragraphs about Black people, hmm. my history books. Hmm. One was about slavery, really, slavery, and one was about MLK. This is for my 12 years of school, and I never had a single Black teacher until my freshman year in high school, and I only had one, and I never had another one again until my first year of law school. Wow. (laughs) That
0: paints the
1: picture. Yeah, and so so people were always and the thing is like i said i'm outgoing i'm outspoken i was i remember going away to duke and i came back if I, for one of the breaks and my dad was like oh, "Every is everything you do black cuz i was over the black student alliance <laughs> I was in the black mass choir. I was, you know, my, uh, we didn't have minors We got certificates. That was in Afro-American <laughs> studies. Like, every he's like, is everything you do black? I'm like, yeah, because y'all put me in all these all-white faces <laughs> like, uh, my whole life. What choice do I have? <laughs> trying to claim my identity. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I try to do is, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say it's code switching so much, but I generally don't have these conversations with white people because I don't want to offend. I don't want to hurt. And I know that when I speak my truth and because I am so outspoken, you don't get your feelings hurt. And so I just tend to try to avoid it and try to stick to whatever issue we have to grapple with. If it's a work assignment, if it is a task we're doing together without it's going to come across as confrontational just because of my demeanor. And so in order to avoid that, I just avoid the conversations.
0: Cool. So with uh, being unadulterated, is there just anything left that you want to say? If you just didn't, uh, if it was an all black space and you wanted to tell some, tell some things about white folks that white people needed to hear, but you don't think they're ready (laughs) to hear, (laughs) what would be some of that?
1: Well, Black spaces, I don't spend a lot of time talking about white folks, to be honest. <laughs> good. That's good, because we don't deserve that real estate.
0: Um, <laughs> but there are things that within Black spaces, you like you said, you would be comfortable to share because you could get a relatability of understanding that you might get pushback if you shared with, with white spaces. So that's all I meant to say is like, what are some well-known things that, um, and maybe not, but in wrapping up, oh. is there anything left that you would want to just kind of like give us here?
1: Uh, Stop treating Black folks as though we are one-dimensional and monolithic. Mm. So don't assume because you had one Black friend when you were six that I am similar to her in, in any way that she and I would have anything in common and that we're not as layered and as complex as you are. So it seems to me that there are... The biggest problem with white folks is they have this concept of what it means to be black. And normally that's very far off the mark and it's usually very limited. So what I mean is when I walk into these courtrooms and it doesn't even occur to somebody that I could possibly be an attorney. Like the big stretch is, oh, maybe she's the clerk, maybe she's the probation officer, but attorney where I actually had to do a whole bunch of studying and go to school and pass a bar and do all those things that couldn't possibly be me. So I'm gonna say expand your circle, expand your mind so that you don't continue to have these moments where you are making these gross assumptions about people that are so wrong and and like i said in that article that i did in law school start moving outside of those spaces
0: yes
1: you have these beliefs because you can navigate your whole adult life your whole childhood your whole adolescence and never ever sit down and have a conversation with somebody who looks like me start making yourself uncomfortable stop being the one who sits with all the other white kids go venture out start meeting some people from different races and start building relationships with them Mm
0: hmm. I love it. You know, it's like, yeah, white people, you know, stop sitting with other white folks in the cafeteria. <laughs> I, I love the name of that. And then also how when you said everyone turned against you, like, the weight of that, like, white folks, we can't be so fragile when we are confronted with very real history that says you haven't had to face everyday interactions with other and difference. And when you do, you're very, very offensive when doing it, you know, and, and so that's called cross cultural learning. And cross-cultural intelligence. So, thank you for what you just said, because the multidimensionality, the the complexity, the humanity of anybody we come across, but black bodies, brown bodies, white bodies, we don't get to assume the one di- the what did you call it monolithic, yeah, monolithic and one-dimensional. You know, um, because that, and then you have to be willing as a white person to really face. Where did you get these stories? Where are the limited associations you've ever been taught about anything in regards to Black people or Black culture? And then start breaking that apart. Because if it was only on television, it was only a song, you're having very limited understanding. It's not real humans you're talking about. You're talking about, you know, a mass media production that's that's, uh, a projection in your distorted minds. And we have to break that up. We can't make Black people teach us about things because the ask can be offensive. The ask itself.
1: Well, I think like every situation I talked about was innocent and that it didn't have any real repercussions on my life other than emotionally. But I think the problem is this happens daily in courtrooms and it can be the difference of a kid getting a slap on the wrist, a misdemeanor, a dismissal or being sentenced to 45 years. So I I think that in encouraging people to start making relationships with people who don't look like them, that's just scratching the surface. Because how I see it play out in courtrooms is literally there'll be a white defendant and a Black defendant, the same age, same crime, which will get wildly different sentences. The black boy will always be looked at as less than human. He will be deemed a criminal. The new phrase here is carjacker. He will be deemed as other. He won't be relatable. Whereas the judge sees the little white boy as, oh, he's like my, my grandkid. Like we saw it we saw play out in real time in the Rittenhouse case. The way the judge spoke to Kyle was like he was talking about his grand his grandson. Whereas if it had been a Black defendant, I don't think that that would have happened. I think we would have had a, a very different result. So this has life and death consequences in a courtroom, in the streets, if you're a police officer making an arrest. I think that's the biggest problem with policing now is aside from the culture, there's no community policing. So it's literally white boys popping into neighborhoods that are all black everybody they're confronted with is other and therefore everybody is a threat. Whereas if you actually had some black friends or you lived in a neighborhood with black people or you actually took the time to get to know the people on your beat, now you don't see that kid as a threat, a perp, a suspect. You start him. oh, that's Mr. Jenkins' grandson. Maybe I should go talk to Mr. Jenkins and tell him what his grandson is up to. So it can have deadly consequences when people live in their little bubbles and don't bother to get to know the neighbor who might look different than them
0: yeah and and as you had spoken earlier on the the systemic you know the roots of 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 the police force in slave catchers right and that the history of that and seeing how that plays out in the the default automatic kind of like animal body response of just seeing a black body a black a male body or a black woman body I, the the breaking your individual bubble can be a Ripple effect impact that does create life and death consequence shifts, right? As you're speaking to in the courtroom and doing that in small little bits helps realize the systemic nature of this. Like you doing a little bit in your own study is great, and yet the impact that's happening that you're describing in the courtroom, how do you change that except for speaking out loud to the systemic nature that? And and pointing it out loud, like here's Rittenhouse, this is the this white kid, and here's this one, and you just keep exposing it over and over again. Yeah. And then us noticing that we are doing this in our own minds every time we interact with someone, perhaps, right? It's like there has to be like some sort of like a mass-white movement that breaks apart systemic systemic systems because essentially you've illuminated we're talking about whole paradigms you're talking about the paradigm in which one's looking through can can be stuck in this systemic white paradigm and and never break out of it and to see that on a criminal level you see that as this one person's decision and it changes just based on not the circumstances but just on whether the person's white or black
1: yeah i think white folks gotta start calling out other white folks Yes. I mean, the ones who do see it, um, you know, they're, they're limited as well, but you got to start calling them out.
0: So and, when you see and naming it, yeah. Naming it in real yeah. time.
1: So for example, when a black person is killed by police, there are always two wildly different camps. The black people are like, oh my God, black, black lives matter. Uh, this boy didn't start, deserve to die no matter what he did. White folks, what's his criminal background? what does his criminal background have to do with him being dead in this moment for a traffic stop? They want to bring, Oh, he was a sex offender. Oh he had Two burglaries in his background. Was he committing a burglary or a sex act in the car when the cop blew his brace out? Like those are the two different camps. And so white people need to start calling that out. Why are you asking for the victim? Why are you vilifying the victim of police terrorism? Terrorism. Why are you asking for the background, the criminal background that's irrelevant in that moment? And so I think that, like I said, white people need to start calling out other white people and stop burying their heads and stop. Act- I mean, my general belief that this is the American way people don't care about anything until the issue is at their door. We saw it with COVID. People didn't care about your grandmama getting COVID as long as it wasn't their grandmama getting COVID. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I say it all the time about the criminal justice system. Nobody cares. So I do videos daily about the criminal justice system and breaking down the law and the terms that anybody can understand because I think that's how the system oppresses us is to keep us at an arm's length using fancy Latin language that nobody knows. And so- People generally don't care about the wrongs of the criminal justice system until their son gets arrested. And I don't care if you're black, white, whatever you are, it's the same way. You didn't know this was happening. You didn't know what was going on. You didn't know about this injustice until it is your son, your daughter, your nephew, your neighbor, your lover who gets arrested. So I don't think it's, I think that's the American, I don't say the human experience. I think that's the American way to be that way. Good distinction. Yeah. But with white folks, I think it's the same with racism and they play these games. I don't see color. You absolutely see color. Uh Your behavior is different when you see color, your behavior is different. If your daughter brings home somebody of color, um, and calls that person, their significant other. So I, you gotta start calling it out, calling out your neighbors, calling out your friends, calling out your loved ones and calling them on their bullshit instead of turning a blind eye. Oh, that's just how grandma is. Or that's just how mom is. Or you know how how Jake is. No, you need to call them all out and then make them accountable for it.
0: Yeah, and exactly. And that that the real time that you do that in your everyday life and you start calling out, you know, when when people are like, you know, maybe it's not about race. And you say and and you you butt in, no, it absolutely is and you speak it into real time in white spaces. This is how change happens where it changes systems, where it can eventually change a criminal system or an educational system, like these systems or the policing system. These systems are rooted in this level of terror and injustice and the, the invisibility or the um, the brutality of the, the Black body. And as white people, we've got to start seeing that the little interactions do make a difference because we start naming the little things that have everything to do with how these big things play out in institutional abuse
1: well i think part of it is you just have to start seeing it and you don't yes. always have to talk about the trauma you have to just start saying so i'll give this example so i went to so years and years and years ago so i did have one good <laughs> white female friend
0: <laughs> real it good one. white female
1: <laughs> you don't speak to me anymore but we're real good white female friend so we went to brazil I don't know, it's like 15 years ago. And so in Brazil, obviously, has all these layers of racism, racial trauma, rape, misogynation, all of that. They have, but it's different than ours, right? They were another, I mean, what Portugal kidnapped more Africans than any other country and had, you know, a, a, whole, a whole slavery system of their own. And so, and those people landed in were taken to brazil and brazil has a huge population of black folks and even the way they look their features is different than here and so i was just fascinated so i had done all this research before i went and i and i saw people who were very fair complected with hair that was thicker and more textured than mine. And then I saw other people who were way darker than me with bone straight hair and blue eyes. To me, I'm fascinated. So I want to I wanna find a tour guide who I can talk to about race and I can talk to about how darker skinned people are treated there. And I can talk about living conditions and I can talk about history. <laughs> My white companion didn't want to have none of these conversations. <laughs> she just didn't want to address it. She just wanted to go on vacation. I'm just like, no. Any place I'm going... Where there is, it is a country where there are Black people who live there, I want to know their history, their current experience, yes. how they're treated, how the politics affect that. I want to know that. She just wanted to cover her ears and close her eyes, like, please stop talking about this. <laughs> and the thing is, we were both public defenders. Mm. So we both had 80%, 90% Black clients. And I'm just like, okay, I guess you're enjoying yourself, you're on vacation, whatever, But how do you not have the conversation? And so I got to the point where I just stopped. And then I had learned a little bit of Portuguese, enough to get around. So I would talk to other people I met about it. But she, and she primarily wanted to find other English speakers.
0: Mm.
1: And most of the English speakers were American. Some, one girl was from Malaysia or somewhere, but she primarily wanted, I wanted to see how the people live in the country I'm (laughs) going to visit. Like, I want to know their culture. You know, you'll find women in traditional garb on the corners and they'll be making a seafood soup with coconut milk. And I want to I want to experience that. I want to see them. I want to see the dancing of the samba in the streets. I want to do those things. And she was less interested in that. And so that's what I mean. You just have to be willing to see it. You don't have to be on vacation in a foreign land to notice things that are in front of you to notice someone's color, to notice their hair texture, to notice their interactions amongst people who are like them. And then people who are not like them to notice, do you tense up? Is your body language different? Is your sp- different? Is your speech different when you're speaking to somebody who you don't feel is like you? Mm-hmm. So I just think we got to be willing to call it out and to be able to, I now we Y'all got to be people, able to white people, White people. <laughs> white people specifically. And,
0: yeah. and I like what you said in that you're saying, you know, you don't have to necessarily like try to trace the trauma. It's like notice how you feel in an experience. like have you gone into a space where it's an all-Black space and you just notice what's in your body and what's going on? And do you tense up or do you change the way you're talking? Or d- does the question you ask, would that be a question that you would have asked another human being like do you so you have to white people have to do some self-examination around cross-cultural awareness is what i'm hearing because you don't have to fly to brazil to have a experience to start realizing wow the humanity of the person across from me if you think not seeing their color is a form of kindness you're wrong it's actually a form of violence and
1: not just that like there's an actual psychological phenomenal social uh it's a it's um it's a social science that studies cross racial identification there's a whole industry Mm -hmm. on this there are experts on this and the the gist of it is if you are say you are robbed at gunpoint and you're robbed by somebody of a different race you are more inclined to identify the wrong person as committing that crime because we don't identify people outside of our tribe as well as those in our tribe. We don't pay attention to features. We don't pay attention mm. to the hair. We literally might say, oh, it's a black dude who who robbed me. Yep, that's a black dude, must be him. And it might that person may not have similar features. They may not have, they might not be the same height. Mm. There's a whole science behind this that you The odds are you're going to identify the wrong person of a different race. But why is that? It's because we are not familiar with one another. We don't pay attention to one another. We are fearful of one another. And so if you're having a conversation, actually see the person before you. See their features. Hear their speech pattern. See their gait. See how you interact with them. Like, don't just... I don't know. I mean, I find a lot of white people are hesitant to, when they're doing descriptions, they won't say the word black. They won't, they won't say the person African-American. Well, you know, he's tall and he's, and he's slim. And, okay, so you've described 90% of the population. Okay, what race is he? <laughs> and then they blush and they feel embarrassed. Like, look, like, let's cut to the chase. And then when you tell me the race, you cannot tell me skin tone. Is he dark skin or light skin? Well, he's black. Was he dark skin or light skin? Is he brown skin? Is he, I mean, what color is he? What did his hair look like? Did he have facial hair? Did he wear glasses? They cannot say. And I see the flip side from black people who come into my office who are beat up by white police officers. Well, he was white. Did he have glasses? Did he have blonde hair? Did he have black hair? Did he have, they don't know. know. (laughs) They just know a white man beat them up. And so we just have to do better about seeing the other human before us start there. And then you can get to traumas and history and all those other things, but try to actually see the person who's standing in front of you as a person, you'd be able to describe your friend, Paul, the white boy who you grew up with, and you've known him all your life. Why can't you describe Steve, who happens to be black and you've known just as long? I don't, I mean, so those basic things, basic humanity is is the starting point yes. of everything.
0: Basic humanity. Yeah. And the historical nature that black people haven't had basic humanity in this country and that this country was founded and so many of the systems were founded on that premise. And so um, as white folks, we got to really look at that and really learn some real history because it goes beyond the chapter or the paragraph of, of slavery in MLK. And we got to not do the MLK quotes. Um, because there are more black people <laughs> and April prayer is one of them quote her uh, she, she's got some badassery coming through um, do you want to speak to uh, some of the platforms you spoke uh, that you
1: we we talked about um, I'd love to hear about those oh sure so the main thing I do it well I do several things so I like educate it. people about criminal law because what I find is that what Is basic to me is unknown to the average person. They don't know what happens after you get arrested. They don't know how you get arrested. They don't know what different crimes are. And so obviously you can find yourself in some bad situations if you don't know the basics or if you're a teenager and you have no clue of how any of this stuff works. So I do videos on Facebook, I was doing daily reels, and then I fell off. But I what I do is I break down law in very basic terms that a fifth grader can understand. And so my platform is called Justice Junkie, I spell justice differently, because there's a saying, there is no justice, there's just us. And that's the notion that justice has always been denied to black and brown people. And so I wanted to turn that paradigm on its head and make justice available to everyone who looks like, like me. And so uh, so justice is spelled J-U-S-T-U-S-J-U-N-K-I-E. That's on TikTok, IG, Facebook. I am most active on Facebook. But then I also have a board game that I created that teaches teens how to survive a police encounter and not end up in a body bag and how to stay out of the criminal justice system. And then I also built a curriculum with my board game as the linchpin, but it's a five-part series called mm-hmm. Street Law Revolution. So I go into schools and nonprofits and wherever they'll invite me to do this course so that kids feel, they feel empowered when they get what's happening and they know what to expect and they know what their options are and they know what their rights are. They feel empowered even if it's a bad situation, they feel empowered. And so that's what my goal is. And I know that as a result, more and more kids will just stay away from the criminal justice system altogether. They'll be able to be ambassadors and, and steer their friends away from the criminal justice system as well. But where people can find me is Justice Junkie. Um, on, on the different platforms, and then my website is my name, com, And then you can see some of my media there and some other things about me.
0: Excellent, I'll be sure to add that to the pl- prayer, uh to the <clears throat> show notes as well, so people can be in contact. Um, you, you heard it, you know, it's like, see. C- April Prayer brought us today this, see the, the multi, multi-dimensionality, the humanity in Black people around you, you know, and her story and your story really amplified it in all of the brilliance as a creator, as a professional, as an attorney, as a writer, um, as a storyteller, um, but also as this platform to educate others and to give others um, a simple way to, to not be othered, right? To be educated and to maneuver their way through systems that are inherently built um a, against uh black bodies of culture. So I really appreciate you giving us a lens into that um, from a professional as well as a personal level today. Okay. Um do you want to give us a snapshot into your song? I always ask guests to bring a song that represents their episode or just what they're bringing to their episode. And um uh, we can't play the whole thing because of copyright, but we give a little snippet <laughs> and you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist and kind of get a groove going with each of the episodes.
1: So you want to tell us why you chose your song and what you chose? Um. Well, I know that Bob Marley was a very um, strong, had a very strong political voice. And so I was trying to think of which Bob Marley song spoke to that best. And I, I chose Redemption song. And at the beginning of the song, he's actually talking about Slaves, or I'll say enslaved black people being kidnapped and brought over on the ships. Um, and yeah, I just think that I I thought the song was fitting to talk about the racial injustice in the United States from its roots.
0: Very well, thank you. And here we go. Um, Redemption Song by Bob Marley and the Whalers.
1: Sold light to the old pirates yesterday, rabbi, sold light to the merchant ships minutes after they took I from the bottom list, but my hand was made strong by the end of the Almighty. We
0: forward in this generation. All right, folks. And again, you can listen to the full song at the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness Podcast. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest. And for all of our listeners, thank you for listening in. Please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all-day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It is commitment to think, do, and live better than we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling the myth of white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we, in our personal commitment, in our own bodies of culture, to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I invite you to listen to learn and to grow beyond the limitations that whiteness has con- has and continues to impose on all of us. If you need more support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. I'm a writer, speaker, and trauma healing activist, offering free and paid resources, online courses, and consulting and body-based cultural intelligence. If you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. And please also like, subscribe, rate, and review and share this podcast with someone that you love. Your listening and sharing support is
1: greatly appreciated.
0: Thanks so much, April. I really appreciate you being here and sharing your voice and your brilliance with us today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.